Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, go to thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Now I'd like to welcome back uh, Professor Hoshield for his second talk this afternoon. Uh, and this one is entitled, Is There Always a Right Choice? Conscience, Prudence, and Natural Law. Let's give a welcome to the professor. Let's see if I can redeem myself from my English prayer, and we'll do it in Latin, okay? Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostrae. Amen. Mary, seed of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is there always a right answer? Is that, what, is that the title? Always a right choice. Is there always a right choice? That's even better. Is there always a right choice? Uh, prudence, conscience, and natural law. Maybe not necessarily in that order. Um, prudence came up at the end of my first talk, and I'm going to come back to that by the end of this talk. Um, but I'm going to first talk about conscience, and then I'm going to talk about natural law. And I'm going to try to give a just kind of crash course to um, uh, introduce those concepts. Um, by the end, I hope that I can use the notion of prudence to help answer the title question, which is, is there always a right choice? Uh, but first, I want to frame that whole conversation by describing a little bit the encyclical that I mentioned in the last talk by John Paul II. We think it was written in 1992, so it uh, recently celebrated its 30th anniversary. It's called Veritatis Splendor, uh, The Splendor of Truth. Um, and if I recall, not very many people had raised their hand when I asked um, if, if uh, you had read it. So I thought it would be worth um, kind of giving you a sense of what that encyclical is about. It was 93. So this is the 30th anniversary year. Um, it's also, I, I believe it's also the 25th anniversary year of Fides et Ratia. So there should be some commemoration of those two encyclicals this year, I think. Um, so Veritatis Splendor, um, maybe for reasons that we'll see, uh, is nominally about moral theology. And in my experience, it's almost never talked about by theologians, but it is talked about quite a bit by philosophers. And I actually think it makes sense um, that, that's, that that's the case. At the beginning of the encyclical, John Paul II does what uh, a good rhetorician would do at the beginning of any um, speech and sort of explain what the, uh, the occasion of it is. And he was very good in all of his, of his encyclicals. 
uh, as many of his predecessor folks were, sort of describing what are the conditions that move me to write this here and now. And he describes a, a condition of confusion. Um, and not primarily a condition of confusion in the world, although that's also the case, but a condition of confusion in the church. So his concern is that there's confusion about um, how to express and talk about uh, the source of and our knowledge of moral norms and the relation of moral norms to um, the rest of uh, spirituality and theology. Um, he particularly frames it in light of the uh, notion of freedom. So he notices that there is uh, a high emphasis on the value of freedom. Uh, there's it's sort of taken for granted that freedom is a good thing. Um, and that this leads to a, um, a misconception about the way that human freedom relates to a more traditional concept in Catholic law theology, and that is the idea of a moral law. Because we think of laws as things that restrict our freedom. And uh, so best case scenario, then we would like seek some sort of balance, right? Where you'd have just the right amount of laws to restrict our freedom in just the right amount of ways. So you can have a little bit of freedom and a little bit of laws and sort of work out that, uh, that balance. So one of the main goals of the encyclical is to reframe the way we understand the relationship between law and freedom, which requires him to recharacterize those notions so that we can better understand what is authentic freedom and what is the character of, the, of, of law that, that would relate to freedom so that law actually fosters freedom rather than freedom. Um, but even before getting to that reframing of freedom and law, um, John Paul II points out that the kind of confusion that he sees in the church about um, about ethics is not the typical kind of confusion that may have prompted previous encyclicals on one or another particular moral issue, right? So decades earlier, there had been a, an encyclical on contraception, right? One particular issue and speaking, um, you know, the church's teaching on contraception. You can imagine that, you know, maybe people were calling him to talk about uh, capital punishment. Lots and lots of particular issues deserve to be addressed by the church. Uh, many, many encyclicals that we count as included in uh, Catholic social teaching could be said to address particular issues, say, in economic arrangements or um, in, um, in the environment uh, or you know, some particular area. And John Paul II was very clear at the beginning of Veritatis Splendor. He was not doing that. He wasn't going to pick a particular moral issue and, and clarify it. He wanted to address the, the conceptual framework within which people thought about moral issues. Um, there, were, there were probably particular moral issues that he had in mind, and contraception was, was very likely one of them. But that, that was an occasion for him to address a different problem. Well, the encyclical is not about contraception or any other particular moral issue. The encyclical is about how is it that we conceptualize um, what it is to make moral judgments. And he thinks there's a number of reasons uh, why modern culture has become confused about this, uh, both uh, uh, kind of tangible social circumstances, but also theoretical circumstances and ideologies, and these things working together to create a kind of confusion about, um, about how it is that moral judgment works. Uh, 
But in particular, he thinks that even within Catholic theology, there had come to be a tendency to say that there's no such thing as an absolute moral norm. Or to put it another way, there's no such thing as an intrinsically evil act. And actually the Trojan horse for this idea that there's no such thing as, a, as a, an intrinsically evil act or, or an absolute moral prohibition was the, the traditional Catholic notion of conscience. So there were some views about the notion of conscience that said, well, the church can give a kind of general instruction about right and wrong, as kind of rules of thumb, you shouldn't murder, you, you, know, you shouldn't commit adultery, but when it comes to actually making a moral judgment, the individual agent has to take responsibility for exercising their, their conscience, and an individual conscience may in fact uh, judge that on this occasion, this thing that's usually sort of as a rule of thumb wrong might be the right thing for this agent to do. Um, John Paul II thought that was a very dangerous mistake. And it's not primarily a theological mistake, it's a philosophical mistake. Uh, and it's a philosophical mistake about how it is that we judge human actions and how it is uh, that the, the Catholic notion of conscience um, uh, should, be, should be characterized as a help in judging, uh, in judging human actions. So, uh, the beginning of Veritas Splendor is very clear up front that it believes that the church needs help to clarify its theological considerations about how we should live our lives so that we can better proclaim the splendor, the beauty of truth, but that the, the, the problem is at root a philosophical problem um, and needs to be addressed as such. And one of the things that John Paul II does in the rest of this encyclical is in a very creative way, in a way that um, it's not that he's um, being coy, uh, but he's very, very uh, kind of careful and subtle about he, how he does it. He draws on Aquinas, and in particular on parts of Aquinas that draw on Aristotle, to correct the errors of modern theologians. Um, so one of the things that John Paul II is doing is drawing on Aristotle's conviction that there is a a, an end or goal for all of human life. Uh, Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics says, well, we have an everyday word for that. Uh, everybody seeks happiness. We can argue about how to be happy, but we don't argue about whether we want to be happy. Right? That's the goal for all of human life. So one of the things that John Paul II does in Veritatis Splendor is he looks around and he realizes, actually, maybe people don't talk that way anymore, but what is the word that everybody agrees is good? What is the word that we all want more of? It's freedom. So he just accepts that. Right? Freedom is the goal. We, we all want to be free. We, it's, it's better not to be restricted. It's better not to be enslaved. We all want to be free. But we, sh we, we can argue about, we can debate, what is true freedom? How, ca how can we be more free? Right? Are you free just because you get to do whatever you want with no constraint? Or is there a certain kind of freedom in uh, living a disciplined, virtuous life that makes available to you activities that wouldn't be available to you if you didn't live that way. And even by asking the question, I'm illuminating the path for answer. Um, so that's one of the ways that um, John Paul II revives uh, a, a more classical tradition of philosophical reflection on um, uh, uh, moral questions. Another way that he does it is by drawing attention to uh, the, the category of classifying species of moral action 
I'll say that again, classifying species of moral action. This is something that he gets from Aquinas, uh, drawing on Aristotle. Um, part of the reason that some people have a difficulty saying that some actions are always right and some actions are always wrong is that we can be very creative about imagining circumstances in which things that we wouldn't normally tolerate could potentially become tolerable or even seem like they would be uh, good or virtuous things to do, right? Maybe we all agree and nod happily uh, and a little bit nervously that murder is always wrong, but then we can imagine circumstances in which, okay, well, if, if we had to choose between you know, pulling the trigger to, to uh, execute this one person or allowing that person to, um, uh, to live and knowing that some terrorist somewhere is, is gonna, you know, uh, detonate a bomb that will blow up an entire city, maybe there's a little bit of a utilitarian in all of us that thinks, okay, well then murder in that case is okay. Like, we'll sacrifice someone to save the man. Right? Um, or, you know, maybe we think, um, yeah, theft is always wrong, but then, you know, there's these weird exceptional cases where, you know, circumstances make it actually okay to do a little bit of theft here and now, like if you have the right, if you have the right intention. Um, so, so there are two kinds of things that can, that, that are actually relevant to moral evaluation. One is a calculation of the outcome. What's gonna happen if I do this, right? If you focus only on outcomes, you're uh, a kind of consequentialist or a utilitarian, right? You're weighing what are the downstream effects of this action and you know, are they better or worse than where I started, right? Um, so if you only pay attention to outcomes and consequences, um, you're a utilitarian or a consequentialist. But that doesn't mean that um, you know, if you're not a utilitarian or a consequentialist, you don't care about that. Obviously, we care about downstream effects. And one of the things that a responsible moral agent does is think, okay, well, what, what would happen if I do this? What would be the outcome? The other thing that, that we, can, we can pay attention to is the intention of the agent, right? Uh, pulling the plug on, uh, you know, your, your great aunt who's dying in the hospital, right? Are you doing that for murderous intent? Right? Because you never liked her and you want to get the inheritance, right? So are you committing murder? Or are you relieving her suffering? Right? And so it's actually an act of mercy and, and um, you know, it, it's a case where killing someone is okay. Um, someone who only paid attention to the intention of an action could use that to justify just about anything. Right? Pick the most heinous kind of crime that you think could be committed and then just change the intention of the agent and the agent could do that same thing with good intentions, right? And what do we say about the road to hell? What's it paved with? Good intentions. So obviously it's dangerous to only pay attention to the intention of the agent, right? What's your motive, right? And then to excuse any action as long as it comes from a good motive. We're not gonna do that. But on the other hand, it does make sense to pay some attention to the motive of the agent. The motive of the agent matters part of the calculus along with the downstream effects, okay? But there's something else. There is also the act itself. Um, it is possible to classify acts into certain kinds, into certain species. And it's because they can be classified into certain kinds that we can say, uh, for instance, that some kinds of actions are um, uh, commanded. Right? You should honor your parents. How you do that, right, we can argue about that. Right? But you should honor your parents. You, you absolutely have to do that. That's a, that's a kind of action that you should do. You shouldn't commit murder, right? There might be tough cases. We can talk about some of those uh, maybe in question and answer. 
uh, about whether something counts as murder or not. But if you know that something counts as murder, right, then you can know that it's always wrong. And it's because we can classify kinds of actions independent of the intention of the agent and the outcome of the act downstream that we can formulate uh, absolute moral norms. We can say this kind of thing should be done and this kind of thing should never be done. What, what John Paul II was afraid of is that the church was losing its ability to say there are certain things that should always be done and there are certain things that can never be done. Uh, and that it was losing its ability to do that because it had forgotten uh, to uh, uh, share the, the, the idea that there are ways of classifying actions under certain kinds of species as kinds. Um, I mentioned that, that uh, the, the, the sort of uh, confusion originated in a, a, a misappropriation of the idea of conscience. Um, and very briefly, uh, it's, it's easy to see how this confusion would be introduced in the first place. Uh, should you always follow your conscience? It has to be a well-formed conscience before you can follow it. If it's not a well-formed conscience, do you still have a duty to follow your conscience? If you knew it was actively bad, if you wanted Yeah, but if you knew that, you wouldn't have, uh, it wouldn't be as badly formed. Yes. I'm not saying Aquinas is always right, but if I go right, this is a safe space. You can say. <laughs> Aquinas says that you are actually bound by your. Conscience. You are bound by your conscience. Even if it's not well formed, because conscience Correct. is sort of the voice of the practical reason. Correct. The practical reason is that which, assert, which discerns what is good, what is right. done. So you're bound by. And believe that's the most truest thing that you can do. These, these are both. These are both parts of the full answer, right? We are bound to follow our conscience. Because we're bound to follow our conscience, because it is actually an obligation that if your conscience tells you to do something, you should do it. If your conscience tells you not to do something, you should not do it. It's because that is such a grave responsibility, right? And we're humble enough to realize, hey, we've been wrong. I've seen other people who are wrong, and maybe even I admit that I've been wrong in the past, right? We have a responsibility to form our conscience, right? So the, the, the responsibility to form our conscience comes from the fact that we have a responsibility to follow our conscience. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds weird. It even sounds a little bit paradoxical, right? But someone with a malformed conscience, whose conscience tells him to do something that, that we all know is intrinsically wrong, would sin by not following his conscience. He would also sin by following his conscience. <laughs> but that's, that's part of the trouble you get into by having a malformed conscience, right? Um, now, I, I should qualify that a little bit further. The, the reason that he doesn't follow his conscience would matter, right? If the person didn't follow the conscience because this person had a little bit of humility and realized, oh, I feel like my conscience is telling me to do this, but man, I know I really messed things up in the, in the past, and everybody else I trust tells me I shouldn't do it, right? And, and I heard that the church has something to say on this matter, and I'm probably contradicting it. If that person pauses and doesn't follow, then, then that person is... is um, not sinning, right? But then, in a sense, that person's conscience isn't telling them, you must do this, right? If, if the conscience tells you to do something, you have to do it. You really do. Um, and part of what this means is that a lot of times when people says, oh, my conscience says it's okay, they're not actually listening to their conscience. They're just listening to some vague voice that, you know, they want to hear. Con conscience is a very, conscience, conscience commands you. Conscience, conscience binds you. 
And you feel it as binding. And sometimes you feel it too late, right? So we talk about the prick of conscience after you've done something and you realize, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Or you fail to do something and you realize, oh, I should have done that. Um, but conscience is binding. Uh, even a malformed conscience binds. But because a malformed conscience binds, we have a responsibility to form our conscience so that uh, we don't find ourselves in these awful situations where we're commanded to do things we shouldn't do. Do you want to follow up? Should it be part of your conscience and form your conscience? Absolutely. We should all, we should all, our consciences should be telling us, you better be. And part of that is, is done through, um, uh, you know, things like making an examination of conscience, going to confession, um, even, uh, you know, simply uh, reviewing what you have to do during the day and thinking about what your obligations are and reflecting on, you know, what commitments you have to other people in your life. Those are ways of, of reminding yourself to, to form and keep forming your conscience. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing process, right? I was going to ask, can conscience really be after? Surely it can be after the event. Can it really be after the event? Surely it's just that kind of, you've actually noticed it's maybe gone bad. I suppose, suppose you could have done something and not seen the result and like, why shouldn't have done that? I mean, I do think it's part of the human condition that we're not always all that well integrated, and so we can do things that we really should and, and sometimes our conscience speaks louder to us after we've messed up rather yeah, than yeah. before. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you haven't experienced that, you know, God bless you. <laughs> I think I got some knowing looks. I don't single anybody out, but I got some knowing looks um, described in that. Um, so a big part of what John Paul II wants to do in Veritatis Splendor, and again, he's very... He doesn't like announce, hey, I'm calling you back to Aquinas, but he starts citing Aquinas at crucial phrases, at crucial places. He starts introducing Thomistic terminology at crucial places. And it's Thomistic philosophical terminology, not specifically theological, not, not dependent on faith or revelation. Um, so this notion of the species of an act, the notion of natural law, which I'll get to in a minute, um, uh, that, that these would be correctives to this sort of perverse, watered-down idea of conscience as, oh, you know, um, you know it, it's just whatever, whatever you want to do. It, at the end of the day, it's, it, 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 was, it was the theological version of morality is subjective. Right? And a uh, good father can give me some general advice, rules of thumb about you know, what the church teaches, but at the end of the day, it's up to me, and I will determine what's right for me. Um, and, uh, the church could never condemn me if, as long as I'm following my conscience. Uh, I saw a hand in the back. Yes. Yeah, Lauren. When you say conscience is binding, does that to say that it's impossible to act against your conscience? Well, so I, I don't quite want to say that, but when, when conscience speaks, it is commanding you. And so when you go against it, you should, you should feel a guilty conscience for going against your conscience. Uh, that was my answer earlier to James. I do think, in a way, it's possible to... Um, go against your conscience or to uh, either um, because of forgetfulness or because of a kind of willfulness to kind of um, hide yourself from your conscience, to, to ignore your conscience, and then it, you know, then it can come reasserting itself in some other circumstance. Um, that's, I, does that address the question, right? In, in what sense does conscience bind? It's not, I'm not claiming something trivially true, that if your conscience tells you to do something, you're forced to do it. Um, I'm saying something uh, psychologically 
true about the nature of conscience. When conscience speaks, it, it commands and binds you. And, but the you that it binds may fail to live up to what conscience is saying. And that's why it's worth articulating that um, you have an obligation to follow your conscience. It's not just automatic that you'll follow your conscience. You, you, it, it's, it's almost a second order moral obligation. You have a bunch of moral obligations. Your conscience, if it's well formed, is giving you insight into these moral obligations. But it is a, a further obligation that you have to listen to your conscience right, when it's telling you what to do. And so you have a further obligation on top of that to form it well. Yes? The well formed conscience. Okay. I'm just going to ask, is a conscience always kind of sort of rebellion against some sort of authority? If you, if your conscience, you know, you have an idea comes into your head, you do that idea, but if you come to a point where you've got a duplicity where you're like, I'm not sure if I should or shouldn't, and you say your conscience says you, should, let's say, shouldn't do that thing, and you've got this duplicity of mind, you're not really sure. You surely the immediate thing is to then go out out of yourself of some sort of authority, whether it's system or knowledge or whatever. And if you still say no, then is it that sense it's always a rebellion against some sort of side force? Um, is, is going against your conscience always a kind of rebellion? I mean, to, to the extent that the conscience is no, an authority. No, no, going against oh. your conscience. Like, is your following conscience, your conscience. Yeah, if your conscience rises up, it's always in, in some sense a kind of rebellion. I oh, I don't think so, no. I mean, I think sometimes it can be a reminder to be obedient. I think someone, someone's conscience could um, rise up because they have been rebelling against authorities they shouldn't be, and they realize, oh, I, sh- I should repent and reform and um, submit. So then if they were always doing that thing, they didn't actually believe in that original authority, they're kind of changing authority. Maybe in half an hour or so, when they have even more vocabulary out in the room, um, we can think, I, I, it would probably be helpful to think of particular cases, because I'm not, I'm not sure I'm even trying to imagine the kind of thing that you, you have in mind. Yeah, I believe yeah. yeah, so it seems to me that often the confusion around conscience arises when people think it's sort of some intuitive feeling, some intuition, right. Right. but should, isn't it more useful to simply identify conscience with uh, the judgment of practical reason. Simply say it's the practical reason that That's judges where we're that gonna end up. good yes. good yes. yeah. yeah. without, without introducing the dichotomy between reason as, and feelings, as we said during the last Correct. Uh, yeah. Con- conscience, there isn't exactly a word for conscience in Aristotle. And Aquinas does a little bit with the idea of conscience, but it's actually not really central to his Moral theology. I think that's fair to say. I'm looking for nods around the head. Yeah, go ahead. Please. Is your conscience? Is your conscience telling you you should speak up on that? Go ahead. Uh, actually, uh, I, I would disagree with you. Go ahead. <laughs> I think conscience is essential in a He defines conscience as the act of applying knowledge to action or I, something along those lines. No. And identifies conscience in the intellect, and actually St. Bonaventure disagreed with him, and honestly, it was a huge mistake, so. Um, so St. Bonaventure would try to say that conscience is also in the effective, or effective as in effectivity. Right, right, effective, yeah. as opposed to the action. Because you usually 
feel guilty if you don't follow it, um, and you feel peace, right? Peace right. of conscience right. if you do follow it. But it was a huge mistake to do that. So we have a set contra. Aquinas does talk about conscience, and it's very and he's very clear about it, and it's important to him. I agree, and we will distinguish. Right? I did not mean to say that Aquinas didn't believe in conscience or that he didn't think it was important. What I meant to say is that in his articulation of moral and ethical theory, uh, it does not play a central explanatory role in the way that, say, uh, ideas of virtue that he gets from Aristotle or ideas of natural law that he gets more, more from the Stoic and, and um, uh, patristic tradition. Um, those concepts play, um, they, they do a lot more work in integrating different ideas. And then what I see Aquinas doing when he talks about conscience, which, which I, I, I agree, he, he believes in it, he talks about it, he gives a definition of it. But what he's doing when he talks about it is, um, in a sense, fitting it into that framework, which had already been defined primarily by other terms, including the notion of the dictate of practical reason. Right? So partly what Aristotle is doing is taking a notion that didn't have a lot of um, uh, agreement about precisely how it should be defined. And he is defining it in terms of Aristotelian uh, and other classical concepts, rather than, say, than uh, defining Aristotelian concepts in terms of conscience as if it were a, a notion that kind of stood on its own and did a lot of work uh, independently. So I think, I think we can agree, even though uh, uh, rhetorically we were, we were disagreeing with each other. Go ahead. I have a question that may, might be a wonder in some point. So what happens with a person that doesn't follow their, their conscience? Yeah. Uh, that makes it like stupid, or it means that he has a new type of conscience. Yeah, they still have a conscience, but they are habituating their conscience uh, away from rather than towards the truth. Um, they um, uh, and and you know this is this is possible. This is a, this is a, a common kind of psychological story. You see this in literature and movies, right? Someone who's basically a decent human being. They they start by doing a, you know a few edgy things and uh, you know get deeper and deeper into something, and then and their their character transforms and they become they become vicious. Um, presumably, the first few times their conscience is pricking them and saying shouldn't have done that, right? And it's harder to then they have to. They have to resist that. They have to ignore it. They have to rationalize it. They have to do whatever it is to, to move away from those messages of the conscience. But eventually, those messages become fainter. They're deadened, right? And they develop a new, a new sense of what their life is about that is, that is not the previous one. So that means that the conscience is still there, but they're not following, not receiving the message in that clear way. They have a a poorly formed conscience and a weak one, presumably. Yeah. So conscience can be important. Yeah. Conscience is not infallible. This is this is what makes it difficult to hold these two things in mind that we started with, right? You have an obligation to follow it, right? But you also have an obligation to form it, because if it, if it's not well formed, it could be wrong. So you have an obligation to follow a voice, right? That, that commands you to do things, but that voice in and of itself is a fallible voice. 
This might be maybe a question asked earlier. Um, it's wondering about the idea of the conscience lying dormant mm. until it needs to respond to a temptation or conflict. Like we might go through a series of situations where you have to make decisions. Right. And then pretty much all the time there's no question about it and you go for the, the right decision. Until one of the times you're tempted to the wrong decision or there's a conflict between the two. And so previously the conscience might not have been involved at all. Um, unless, you know, it's arguing that every time previously it's just so well formed that you don't notice it, so to speak. But here it arises, maybe that idea of a rebellion in response to a temptation of this conflict yeah. to get you to choose the right decision. I think that can happen. I mean, a part of me wants to see if it, it will become easier for us to talk about the way in which conscience doesn't have authority over actions once I also cover a little bit of natural law and then by talking about how practical reason natural law really is. Uh, because if my um, uh, gesture of, of um, uh, integrating Inez's observation about conscience is, is right, right, we shouldn't expect conscience to help us clarify these things without relating it to some other some other things in the conceptual landscape, right? So let me talk a little bit about natural law. That'll be my transition to natural law. Okay. Uh, first observation about the idea of natural law. Um, although we associate it with Aquinas and we think of Aquinas as uh, sort of working within a generally Aristotelian framework, obviously, um, developing it and, and adding to it from a Christian perspective. Um, there isn't really the idea of natural law uh, in Aristotle, or let me correct that. The phrase natural law isn't in Aristotle. Uh, the idea is there in a kind of nascent form, but in Greek it would have been very awkward to talk about natural law. In Greek, nature or phusis is what's, uh, what happens sort of automatically out there. And uh, law, or nomos, is the realm of convention. So in Greek, nomos and phusis are like different spheres. Right? There's, there's nature, and then there's the realm of human convention. And to talk about what's a natural convention, that's, that doesn't sound right even in English. Right? Or what is, what is conventional nature? I mean, that, maybe there's a metaphor there, but that, 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 doesn't, really, that doesn't really work. Right? The closest that Aristotle gets to um, the phrase natural law is in a passage in, um, I think it's in the rhetoric, and he's referring to um, Sophocles' Antigone, in which the character Antigone defies the tyrant King Creon, who had commanded that she not bury her brother who died in war, and Antigone feels an obligation, which we might say an obligation in conscience, um, to uh, to bury her brother despite the law preventing her. And she explains why she wants to do that because um, she thinks there is a higher law, a law from the gods that she's obligated to follow as opposed to the law from the, the king, right? So there's a, there's a conventional law, a man-made law, but because this man, Creon, is vicious, that's a, it's not a good law. Uh, and there is a higher law from the gods and because it's from because it's from the gods, it's more worth listening to. And so Antigone is willing to risk um, 
her own well-being, her own life, to obey the higher law. We might talk about that in terms of conscience. That, that's, that's not part of Sophocles' play. It's not part of Aristotle's lingo. But it is talked about in terms of a law. And Aristotle summarizing what Antigone does in, in that play is he says that she appeals to a law according to nature. Right? So not quite natural law, but a law, a, a willed thing by some agent, the gods, that accords with the way things are or should be, nature. A, a nomos kata fuzin, fuz, Um The idea, the phrase natural law doesn't really come into use until after Aristotle in the Stoics, and it enters into um, uh, Christian theology from, from the Stoic tradition. Um, but here's where Aristotle does make a concept, the, the conceptual space for natural law is in the Nicomachean Ethics already, even if the phrase isn't there. Right? Um, there he says that um, justice in the most general sense is a matter of conforming to law. It's a matter of doing what ought to be done, a matter of doing what is commanded. Um, and he says that there is a difference between um, uh, human or man-made justice and general or natural justice. Right? So we've got natural justice, which is things that are that ought to be done regardless of what culture or society you're in, right? versus things that the, the reason that their obligations is because this culture has made them so by what we would call positive law, right? man-made law. So there's a thing called general justice as opposed to um, the, the justice of this society versus the justice of another society. I mean, I come from a place where it's just to drive on the right side of the road. Over here, it's just to drive on the left side of the road. There's not a natural law uh, rule there. But there is a natural law rule that you, know, you should be safe when you're operating a heavy equipment, right? And there's another natural law rule that says if you have authority over a large society, you should try to create the conditions in which people can operate uh, you know, safely. And so it makes sense that some rule or other be devised, right? Either it's going to be the right side of the road or it's the left side of the road. So there might be a, a, a matter of natural justice that there be some law or other about how we drive our cars, right? but it's not, a, it's not a natural, it's a matter of convention here, but it's the left side versus the right side. Right? So Aristotle saw that. He didn't have the language for calling it a natural law yet, part of, partly because of the, the quirks of etymology in, in Greek. It just wouldn't sound right to him. But conceptually, we can see that, that he had space for something like natural law, because there was natural justice, and justice in the most uh, general or universal sense is conformity to law. And so it's as if we need at least something analogically like law for nature that covers how things go independently of what we normally call law, which is particular um, dictates in this community or that community. Okay. Um, now, Aquinas, when he uh, develops the idea of natural law, um, he differentiates uh, levels of um, it's, most, it's most typical when we talk about natural law to think of things sort of like the Ten Commandments and say, okay, well, it's a natural law that we shouldn't commit murder. It's a natural law that we shouldn't commit adultery. It's a natural law that we should honor our parents. Um, but Aquinas says, well, um, as with 
matters of theoretical reason, where there are first principles and then there are things that we might derive from them. In, in the realm of natural law, there are sort of first most universal principles, and then there are sort of secondary specifications of those principles, and then there might be uh, uh, even more distant from those natural law uh, dictates that are derived from or, or even further more contingent specifications of those. Right? So the first principle of natural law is do good and avoid evil. Not very helpful on a day-to-day -day basis, but presumed by everything else that is helpful. Right? If, if you come to me and you have a moral dilemma and you don't know what to do, and I say, well, start here, do good and avoid evil, um, I mean, unless you're a really evil person, that's not a very helpful reminder. Right? Um, it's almost a truism. It's like saying, okay, well, um, uh, when we're doing science, let's make sure to affirm truth and uh, deny falsehood. Okay, I know that. Well, but it's, it, it can be useful at least while we're articulating these ideas to realize, okay, there's a first principle. You wouldn't avoid evil. That first principle can actually be articulated in different kinds of language. Um, like we, we could say uh, that, that the, the uh, first principle is pursue happiness, right? Uh, seek the final goal of all human life. Uh, again, these are true. They're crucially true. They're also uh, kind of inescapably true so that they don't actually necessarily help you with decision making in a particular circumstance. So the first way that, that Aristotle says that the first principle of natural law gets specified is with respect to uh, a reflection on human nature. And we got a little bit of this in the talk uh, yesterday on human nature. Um, right? We are beings. And so one of the things that we want to do as beings is preserve ourselves in being. Our, our, our existence is good, and so there, there is a kind of, it's, this is still very general and very basic, right? but there's a, a kind of natural law um, uh, requirement that we uh, uh, seek to continue ourselves and fulfill ourselves as the kind of beings that we are. That's not specific to human beings because presumably everything else is also uh, under that kind of uh, uh, natural law. Although you can see how um, that alone could be enough, say, for us to have a further precept against suicide. Right? So we could say suicide is wrong because it goes against the, the, the natural law principle that we should preserve ourselves in being. Another, another uh, 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 level of analyzing human nature says, okay, we're not just beings, but we are actually uh, living beings and uh, sensitive beings, right? Uh, we're biological beings. Uh, we reproduce. Um, we can only exist insofar as we're members of a species. And so there, there are uh, the 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 the, uh, the second uh, of these three specifications is uh, that that we should do those things that contribute to the propagation of the species. Um, the third relates to our distinctively human nature, and it's, it's, the, it's the richest and the most, most of the specifying of the other two comes from this third one. And that is, insofar as we're rational beings, uh, we have an obligation to seek truth, and Aquinas includes here also seeking society, seeking friendship. Right? We're, we're not just herds, we don't just travel in clusters, right? but uh, human uh, collective behavior is, is a way of engaging our knowledge 
uh, communicate with other people and we, we try to understand them and know them and, co and uh, connect our, um, uh, coordinate our activities between ourselves. So insofar as we're rational creatures, one of the things that we do uh, intellectually is we seek the truth and practically is we want to uh, know other people and to know God. Um, those are still very general, right? They're a little more helpful, but on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not going to help you all that much make moral decisions to know that you should, um, you know, seek the truth, be be, a, be social, uh, preserve yourself in being. Sometimes those are helpful to remember, right? Um, if if you're very very introverted and, and antisocial, then maybe you have to work a little extra harder on how your temperament is going to fit with the community. Um, uh, to, to be a member of society, but um, they're still very, very, very general. Right? Um, for Aquinas, it is not possible to be ignorant of the first principle of natural law. Everybody knows you should do good and avoid evil. We don't argue over that. Um, it's not really possible to be ignorant of the first specification of natural law principles, although people can kind of be forgetful about them or not notice how they apply, or they can be so well-formed or come from such a terribly corrupt culture that they might not realize that these are sort of basic um, uh, good things for human beings to be pursuing. But when it comes to much more specific um, applications of these general principles, it is possible for people to not see them uh, for reasons that may be not entirely their fault. Right? For a Catholic, by the way, right, the, the uh, command against using uh, artificial contraception is a natural precept. Right? It's been reinforced by um, ecclesiastical authority, but part of what ecclesiastical authority tells us is that, hey, this isn't just some pope's opinion. This is a natural law principle. Um, I think once upon a time, it was easier for most people to see that as a natural law principle. But I think we live in uh, circumstances in which there are people who really have a hard time seeing that. It's, it's very difficult to grasp that unless you have a lot of help and unless you've been, been uh, given um, sort of fortunate circumstances in which to connect all the dots and realize that, that this is part of uh, a whole network of truths about how it is that human beings can live together um, in, in a virtuous society. Um, just war theory. Um, some, some of just war theory is sort of intuitive, uh, but some of it depends on um, you know, understanding the circumstances of uh, political society and having experience with how it is that um, you know, conflict between, uh, between political communities can play out better or worse. Um, and certainly, particular judgments about application of just war theory, we can argue about, right? We could, all, we could all agree that we should only fight just wars. We could even all agree what the principles of a just war are, but we might not agree about whether they apply in this particular circumstance. Five minutes. Um, is that right? Or did, would, were you saying five? Does Q&A go until quarter after? Okay. Um, so one of the things that Aquinas does that Aristotle uh, you know, wouldn't have done, but he kind of provided the space for it, was articulate a, a theory of natural law. Um, and 
uh, connect it to the idea of practical reason. Right? Um, the natural law is a law in the sense that it, it fulfills the, the definition of a law, which is a dictative reason for the good of a community from someone who has care of that community, from an authority, right? and promulgated to that community. So whose reason is the natural law from? Who's the authority? I mean, the, the nature is like the natural law. The natural law articulates the natural order uh, that is described by nature. But, but who's the authority of that order? Where did that order come from? It has to be a dictative reason. It comes from the creator, right? The natural law governs human behavior. We are, we are creatures made by God. So God is, God is an authority who has determined that there should be a certain way for these things that he made. We make up a community with him, and he has authority over that community. And here's where I would, here's where I, where I would bring up our natures, right? That's how he promulgates the natural law. Right? The natural law is promulgated to us by making us the kind of thing that we are. Right? So the, the law say that um, adultery is wrong. Right? It's not like God made rational social animals and then said after the fact as a kind of extrinsic stipulation, you know what, I'm going to require them to live by this weird rule about marriage. Right? No, the, the making of human beings as rational social animals, right, and so sexually differentiated, so male and female, and making, making us so that um, uh, new members of the species are radically dependent on their parents for many years after they're born, right? That, the, in other words, the making of human nature is the communication to us of here are the conditions under which you will flourish, right? And, and it, includes, it includes fidelity of spouses, and obligations of spouses to their, to, of parents to children, and of children to their, to their parents. Um, I, I'm doing this very, very quickly because I only mean it as an example, and not to try to, you know, persuade everybody or answer objections. Right? But the natural law is a particular part of God's governance of all of creation. So God created the universe, and and He governs it. And so Aquinas says that God has a law over all of creation. And he calls that the eternal law. And another name for the eternal law is God's providence. But God's providence is God's mind seeing and knowing everything that, that, that is and every, everything that it should be. Right? So everything in creation is governed by God's eternal law. Human beings as rational agents participate in the eternal law in a very, very particular way. Because our nature is rational, we participate in and get to follow God's eternal law as rational beings, and that's his definition of the natural law. The natural law is the rational creature's participation in the eternal law. And John Paul II in Veritatis Splendor gives his own creative translation of this. He calls the natural law participated theonomy. Participated theonomy. And he, and he calls it that to differentiate it bet between autonomy, where we govern ourselves, right? There, we are a law unto ourselves and nobody has authority over us, versus 
heteronomy, a law of, of another, the other presumably not necessarily having an interest in us or it feels like it's imposed on us, it's extrinsic to us. Right? And he wants to say, well, when, when we are under the law, it's not, it's not our law, we didn't invent it, it's God's law, but God doesn't impose on us something that has nothing to do with us. Right? God made us to be a certain kind of being and communicated to us in our natures that we can share in a life with him by following this law. Uh, a really, a really um, kind of silly example, but I think it helps uh, to make the distinction between an extrinsic law uh, or heteronomy and what John Paul II is, is calling a participative theonomy or a kind of in, intrinsic um, uh, divine command. Is, is think of the difference between the rules governing the pieces on a chessboard and the rules governing on which foot you should put which shoe, right? The, ch the pieces on a chessboard, if they were discovered by um, you know, a Martian, they, they don't tell you anything about how they should move, right? They're totally independent of the rules of chess. And you can make up your own game with those very same pieces Right? The fact that the bishop can do the diagonal thing and the king can only move once and the knight can do a little horsey jump thing. Right? Th those, are, those are totally extrinsic to the pieces. The pieces, the pieces are, are, are not in any way inherently related to those rules. Now we all take those rules for granted because we learned chess and we actually learned about the pieces in relation to those rules. Right? But logically speaking, there's nothing about that box of pieces that, that, that could recreate the game of chess without someone telling you what the, what the rules are. But, but shoes, you know, it's not like the shoemaker makes one shoe and another shoe and then just says, all right, now, now let me decide which is the right shoe and which is the left shoe, right? And you don't have to ask the shoemaker when you buy the shoes which shoe goes on which foot. The nature of the shoe itself speaks to you. This is how I'm meant to be used. This is where I'm supposed to go, right? And there's even a kind of built-in uh, self-correcting uh, signal that you'd get if you got it wrong, right? Like you're, you, they would feel uncomfortable, they would, they would pinch, and they, or they wouldn't even go on your foot the right way if you tried to do it, if you tried to do it wrong. So the natural law is like that for us. Right? God, God has created some laws for us, but they're not extrinsic, they're not chess piece rules, right? As if he could change them and like wake up tomorrow and say, you know, those were 10 good commandments, but they've seen their day, I'll just write them there another set, we'll try a different experiment. No, the Ten Commandments articulate something that's already encoded in our nature as the kind of beings that we are, and they couldn't, they couldn't be otherwise. Um, and it helps to have God there reminding us, and it's nice to be able to go to God and ask him, you know, what, what were your rules for us? But you don't have to believe in God to know that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that theft is wrong, that children should honor it. That, that children should honor their parents, right? These are things that you can figure out right, by experiencing what it is to be the kind of, what it is to be the kind of creature that we are. How do we figure that out? Well, we figure that out because we are, we are participating in God's creation through our own reason, including our practical reason. Um, so I, I will end uh, uh, you know, in a couple of minutes, and hopefully there will be lots of questions, right? But think of all the things that we're seeing connected and that Aquinas connects uh, when, when he um, talks about all of these things, right? He's, he's connecting the idea of conscience, the idea of natural law, the idea of God's providence. It's a very theological notion, 
right? Um, and the idea of prudence, because prudence is the virtue of practical reasoning. Prudence is the ability to judge well what should be done in the circumstances here and now. It's a very complicated virtue, by which I mean it involves integrating many different parts. The, the prudent person has to be able to size up what situation am I in, has to be able to judge the circumstances. The prudent person has to be able to um, weigh what would be the consequences of the actions uh, that are available to him. The prudent person has to be able to assess what are the particular circumstances informing the, the concrete situation in front of me that are, that are relevant, that are salient, that might weigh on the judgment. But the prudent person also has to be able to discern what are the relevant rules here, right? Um, what, what, are the, what are the general precepts that say these kinds of acts should or shouldn't be done, right? I should honor my parents. I should also not commit murder. So the doctor has said I can unplug grandpa, grandpa or grandma, right? Well, um, that could be done virtuously or not, right? It could be done in a murderous way. It could be done in a way that, that honors the parent. But circumstances matter, and it would entirely be up to judging those circumstances and the, the, um, uh, uh, how it is that the agent is weighing those to determine whether an individual act, say, of taking someone off of life support is uh, an act of uh, charity towards someone or an act of murder. Now, notice what I've done. I have not said um, murder is usually wrong, but sometimes you can get away with it, and it's okay. Right? No, murder is always wrong, but in particular circumstances, there might, be, um, there might be reasons to think that something should or shouldn't count as murder. It's prudence or practical reasoning that enables one to discern how those circumstances fit with the, the, the categories of right and wrong. Um, and, and so we're connecting now the virtue of prudence, which discerns the precepts of practical reading, which are principles of natural law, which is what the voice of conscience tells us. Um, all of these things then have to be understood in terms of each other. You can't do without any of them uh, to, to properly understand how Aquinas understands the, the burden of, of moral choice. But now uh, I will very quickly try to answer the the question of my title. Is there always a right choice? Uh, if the question is, is there always a right kind of choice? Uh, yeah, always do good, always avoid evil, right? Always honor your parents, never murder, never commit adultery. That's not all that helpful though, right? That's not what we mean when we say there always a right choice. Uh, we mean in the circumstances here and now facing this choice, right? Is there always is there always uh, one thing that the agent must or should do? Um, yes and no, distinguo, right? Um, there might be, in terms of the kinds of acts available to the, to the agent, multiple things that are equally good, right? As long as the agent avoids things that should never be done um, and uh, uh, pursues some some good, the agent might have a choice among many different goods. And so there doesn't have to be one right act, but there, there still could be a difference between good action and bad action. 
But I actually think, and this, this is uh, more a kind of provocation for further conversation than it is something that will sort of fall into place uh, based on what I've said already. For Aquinas, there is a sense in which for every virtuous agent, there is a right thing to do in the circumstances. But the right thing to do in the circumstances is only partly determined by precepts of natural law. Right? Precepts of natural law will tell you what kinds of things must be done, what kinds of things must be avoided. And what determines the rightness of the action of a virtuous agent is not just what, what natural law principles does it fall under, but how is the agent's will engaged in determining the action. Uh, and this is part of God's providence. This is part of God's mystery, right? That, that we are a part of, of creation, and, and we are free agents, and we help determine God's creation. And this is another way of expressing the grave responsibility we have. Right? It's, we don't just have a responsibility to form our consciences so that, so that they are uh, telling us the right general things to do. But we have a responsibility to form ourselves as agents so that the things we do are the things that are the right thing to do. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that you should like, suddenly be very, very anxious about whether, oh my gosh, am I going to do the wrong thing now? Or, what, what is the one right thing for me to do? And that's, that's not the point of this. I'm not trying to turn you into you know, scrupulous, anxious, nervous people. But I am trying to communicate a sense of the, um, the, the great moral gravity of the fact that God has made us moral agents. And he wants us to act well. He wants us to know and love him. And he wants us to obey the, the, the laws that, that give us the true freedom of our nature. And this this... Uh, uh, I think should both inspire humility but also courage that God has entrusted us to share in his creation of the world as free moral agents. So I'll stop there and we have 10 minutes for questions. So the question is about uh, the relationship between new natural law theory and, and the account that I'm giving. Um, I think, uh, first of all, I think it's significant um, and just that new natural law theory, as far as I know, um, really no longer presents itself as an interpretation of Aquinas. It started out that way, um, and other Thomists argued with them so much that I think most, new, most representatives of the new natural law um, sort of movement now say, okay, well, we're not claiming this is what Aquinas said, but, but this is just our theory, and we, and we might even think it's better than what Aquinas said because our theory better takes account of uh, maybe certain developments in modern philosophy, better takes account of Hume, better takes account of positivism. Um, I think the new natural law theory is very clever, um, but I, I think 
that it unfortunately separates um, uh, moral theorizing from moral psychology and metaphysics. So based on the, the place where I started my, my first talk, right, um, I think that you can't properly understand practical reasoning without understanding the faculty of practical reason as the faculty of a certain kind of um, being. And you can't understand you know, the faculties and activities of that kind of being without having a general understanding of the nature of being and, and activity. So I think, while I think that the new natural law theory has been very good at um, contriving arguments that get to the right conclusions, I think that it, at the end of the day, it actually doesn't have the theoretical resources to support its principles. And that's, that's pretty controversial, at least in some, in some rooms. Um, Alistair McIntyre says in, a, in an essay criticizing the new natural law theory, um, you can find this in a book called Common Truths. McIntyre says that any good theory of moral reasoning has to include an account of how it is that so many people are bad at moral reasoning. Any good theory of moral reasoning has to include an account of why so many people are bad at moral reasoning. Um, and, you know, uh, the idea here is that, if, especially if you believe there's moral right and wrong and that there's a right way to do it, and if you believe that, that they're, um, in a way, self-evident, right, because they've been you know, communicated to us as natural law principles, how come so many people fail to see that? And in Aquinas's, in, in, sorry, in Alistair McIntyre's analysis, which, which I am inclined to agree with, he thinks that Aquinas is better at articulating how there can be a natural law and how so many people can fail to see it, and that the new natural law theorists have a really hard time explaining. If they're right, that simply the fact of having practical reason should reveal these truths to us, then they have to claim that, that most people are dumb or don't have practical reason or um, he doesn't, he doesn't, in other words, he doesn't think they have the moral psychology and behind that the metaphysics to account for um, how it is that uh, if, if they're right about the natural law, how it is that so few people have discovered it. But that might be a topic for further conversation. Yeah. How can you explain the natural law to someone who doesn't believe in the that's a great question. Um, the, the definition that I gave of natural law from Aquinas, right, um, is a definition of what natural law is, and it needs to be from an authority. But it, it, it could be possible to describe the experience of natural law, right? And I think most people, in fact, do, they're sort of introduced to the idea of natural law without, um, uh, grounding it in, a, in an origin in God, right? In fact, I mean, even though my definition might make it seem like first you have to believe in God before you can believe in the natural law, practically speaking, many people come to believe in God because they first experience the natural law, right? They realize, hey, I, it seems like, you know, human life is governed by certain norms. It seems like I'm, 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 I'm called to live a certain way. It seems like I have this... Um, uh, you know, basis for judging that certain ways of life are better than others, what is the source of that? Um, so I guess if someone doesn't believe in God, I, th I think you can still talk about natural law. Um, one of the best instances of this, by the way, um, and, and I consider this a modern classic uh, treatise on natural law, 
is C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. I think he uses the phrase natural law maybe once or twice in the book. It's not a, it's not a common phrase in the book. But um, he is talking about the the a theory of natural law. And um, part, of, part of what he does is review reasons why psychologically we need to recognize that there, there are uh, certain uh, kinds of judgments and certain kinds of uh, norms for life that seem inescapable and that, that it would be dangerous and catastrophic if, if we ignored them. Um, so I don't know if you know that book by C.S. Lewis, but um, I would take that as a kind of guide to how it is that you can begin to talk about natural law without bringing God into it uh, directly. I do think at the end of the day, to have a complete theory of natural law, you, you have to trace it back to its origin. But I think you can say quite a bit about natural law without using theological language. Uh, once I was asked by a friend, I think she's Christian, but she, I was asking about love and, and homosexuality. And I was like, the first thing that popped up to my mind was natural law, and I didn't right. explain it. Because, I mean, she seemed to be like sort of Christian, but not really Christian. So, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that's hard about this is that um, there is not one right way to have that conversation. Um, there might be a right way for you to have that conversation with her, and that might differ from the way that I would have that conversation with her and the way that you would have that conversation with someone else. So, I mean, um, and, and I think this is a good general reminder, not just for this talk, but for listening to, to um, talks about, um, you know, how to defend um, uh, certain optimistic insights or defend certain philosophical truths. It's one thing to <clears throat> hear a defense that, that outlines and introduces certain ideas. Um, but that doesn't mean that the, the presentation that you heard is the only or the best or the most rhetorically effective way to communicate to someone else in a very different circumstance. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I teach seminarians and when they start out they often want to know, okay, well, what's the argument that I can give about why atheism is wrong? It's like, it depends on the atheist. I mean, there's so many different reasons why someone is an atheist. There's so many different ways people would articulate atheism. Um, and and I, I genuinely find that sometimes, um, you know, students are surprised at first to realize, wait, you know, I can't just sort of prove that they're wrong. Well, I mean, yeah, we can review Aquinas' five ways, but they're only persuasive if you've reached a certain level of, theolo of philosophical sophistication to even follow them. Um, and really, there are so many different sources of atheism, um, and you have so many different kinds of um, uh, status and rhetorical opportunities with different kinds of people that um, part of practical reason is summing up what, what are the opportunities I have in this circumstance to help this person just take the next step from whatever it is that they are thinking, take the next step towards the truth. And that's a, that's a very, very difficult, very difficult thing to know how to do. Um, I do think there are lots of opportunities, though, to talk about um, ethical norms without having to refer to God. But it depends on the person, what, what kinds of uh, conversations they'd be open to having about that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. 
If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.themysticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.